Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for being here wherever you are in the world. I have an incredibly passionate and exciting guest today. His name is David Rippey. David's life changed dramatically when a car accident left him paralyzed from the shoulders down. He was 25 years old and in the midst of beginning a career at a Fortune 50 company. Despite this life-altering injury, David formulated a vision for his life. He was determined to fulfill his ambition to become a money manager, and he did. David went on to have a long and successful career working both at Merrill Lynch and the Vanguard Group. After achieving his dreams, David wanted to help others to reach their goals and live their best lives in spite of facing the greatest hardships of their lives. Each of his three books addresses a different facet of existence, the mental, the physical, and the spiritual. David continues to spread his message of positivity through writing and speaking engagements. He still believes that there are more miracles to come in his life and works towards new goals and aspirations every day. This is his story and this is his passion. David, I'm so honored to have you on Passion Harvest. Welcome. Thank you, Louisa. And I just want to mention I've uh, watched several of your episodes with Dr. Raymond Moody and Dr. Peter Woodbury of the ARE and Sue, which I've been involved with for quite some time, not working with them, but you know, aware of their work and reading their materials and things like that. And, uh, fascinating topics. It's great to see uh, more people taking an interest in, uh, you know, near-death experiences or life after death and things like that. Mm. Just to just to backtrack, and I, I just I was we were speaking before this, and I said, amazing how far you've come, and just the accident and how it completely changed your life and how you overcome such adversity. Do you mind just briefly discussing that? No, that's fine. Uh, what happened was I had a pretty much typical Midwestern upbringing. We, uh, my father was transferred around a lot. I ended up going to school down at Texas A&M. So I graduated and uh, came out and I was you know, ready to start a job with a Fortune 50 company. And I was athletic and did a lot of fun pursuits and sports uh, throughout my life. And you know, one night uh, coming home, a um, friend of mine was driving and um, hit a dead deer in the road, which threw the car into the woods. And at that moment, I was uh, instantly paralyzed. Gosh. And I mean, it, it's obviously, it's been a, an extreme journey from you for you just to, I mean, obviously to be where you are, but how did you make the, well, there was no decision, but how did you decide this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And um, I'm going to achieve everything I can despite my disabilities. Well, I was competitive uh, growing up. I enjoyed sports and, uh, you know, the competition of sport. And um, after that, being paralyzed, I couldn't really pursue that any longer. So even though I did, you know, I did decent in school and college and things like that, I never really applied myself academically, probably to what I could have done. So I decided to uh, be more competitive. Um, you know, with a career, uh, going back to school, taking graduate course in portfolio management and decided that, um, you know, for me to feel fulfilled in this, you know, in this journey after paralysis, 
you know, I had to have some career that I thought would be interesting. I get bored fairly easily. So I found that being a career and a money manager might be kind of fun. It would be, uh, you know, different every day, constantly changing all around the world, the dynamics. And, you know, I thought that would hold my interest. So we decided to pursue that. And, uh, you know, what I find is that if, you know, if somebody comes to a traumatic event, a challenge, um, I think the best thing to get back on track is maybe to set some goals, set some goals that, you know, might be small goals at first. And uh, what I did was I just came out and said, you know what, I think I'd like to be a money manager, but here I am paralyzed. I mean, how am I going to do this? I didn't yeah. know anyone in the field. I had no connections. And then I kind of thought, well, through the eyes of a money manager employer, what would they want to see in a, a candidate? So I figured I needed more schooling. So I went back to school and started pursuing more uh, graduate work and, you know, finance and things like that. I knew I needed assistance now before I was very independent physically, didn't need help. So now I needed assistance that could not only help me with my healthcare needs, but also could help me in a fast paced brokerage environment, you know, filling out order tickets, taking client notes, all these things that are important. So uh, it took those little steps within that larger goal. So I think a lot of people, uh, you know, might say, you know what, I'm hurt. Uh, or maybe I'm not hurt, or I lost my job, my restaurants failed due to COVID-19, uh, you know, a host of things. Um, and so what's, you know, what I think is important is maybe look for another goal, look for a dream you might have, but realize there's going to be goal, there's going to be steps in between that goal from point A where you're at now, and maybe point B where you want to go. So I think if we kind if they concentrate on those littler goals within the larger goal, fine tune those. Um, you know, it can make for a you know better opportunity, a better thing than just saying, "Wow, how am I going to get there?" And I, that's what I did. I set goals and uh, kind of figured out what employers wanted. They wanted the Series Seven brokerage license. They wanted Series Sixty Three. So I was fortunate enough, and I went and got work experience in a competitor of theirs outside of Philadelphia. So I showed my resume that I had work experience. I had you know pursuing further education. I had the licenses out of the way. And they didn't, one thing I did fail to mention, though, is in, on the um, applications and in the cover letter, I never made any mention of my disability. So uh, a couple of interviews I showed up for, they were going, wow, uh, you know, we like this resume. Is this the same guy that's, you know, in the wheelchair in front of us now? So what I found was that when I brought a good assistant, trained her well to, you know, look the employer in the eye, shake his hand, do what I could, would do if I could. Uh, you know, I could see where kind of a seamless act. So that's kind of what uh, got me the opportunity at Merrill Lynch. And, uh, you know, we carry that forward to Vanguard and other companies. How wonderful, and this is just a basic question. So obviously you're in a wheelchair, you need uh, an assistant, a, con a constant assistant to take care of your health needs. Well, I don't have a lot of really health needs, which is nice. I am paralyzed, but you can't use my arms. But, you know, I can set up my environment where, you know, I can go get a drink of water if I want. I can do the computers. I can do phones. Uh, so it leaves me, you know, read on Kindle online, you know, these kind of things, conduct Zoom interviews. So a lot of things I don't need that much attention to where it would be require more attention would be, you know, getting put back into bed at night, getting up the next day, getting mm -hmm. back in the chair, so to speak, you know, getting something to eat during the day or something. When I work full time was doing, not doing the certified hypnotherapy work, uh, yes, that was an all-day job. So they were with me all day long, running around the office, filling out order tickets, you know, taking client notes. So yes, that was a lot more dynamic, a lot faster paced than, uh, you know, writing books and things you can do on your own. You are so positive 
Did you ever have days when you just felt like giving up? Well, giving up is kind of a hard term. I mean, there are those that have sadly taken their lives. Um, you know, I think I think I contrary. I was well, the first couple of weeks after the accident. I'm, you know, here I am. I'm six two. I'm benching three hundred twenty five pounds. I'm strong. I'm athletic. And you think, wow, you know, if somebody should have not broken her neck, probably should have been me because I was, you know, I had a strong neck from wrestling for years and such. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me. Um, but when you're in the hospital and you're going through the procedures, you're in pain, uh, no painkillers or anything, and uh, you know, you're seeing your body starting to atrophy, you're something losing some of the muscle tone, and you, mm-hmm. you know, spend years working toward building up for various sport endeavors. So. That was the point for about two weeks where I felt, wow, I don't know anything about this injury. I've never had a biology or chemistry or physiology course in high school or college. So it was all new to me. And uh, that was quite a learning experience. I mean, it wasn't like I'd gone through school in pre-med where I said, oh, spinal cord, this is what I need to expect. And I didn't know anybody that was in a wheelchair. So the whole thing was so surreal. Um, And like I said, the first couple of weeks, you're a little, you're depressed. But then the goal is to get out of the hospital. You know, I'm still the same person. I didn't have any head trauma, which obviously very helpful. Um, so I was able to keep a more positive attitude. And once I started setting goals, you know, that kept me busy. So I didn't have time to uh, feel sorry for myself, put it that way. You are such an inspiration. How do you, um, obviously, how do people, other people interact with you? But what's it, like, what's it like when people feel sorry for you? Do you are you ever ashamed of your disability? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I never really have had a lot of people around me uh, because I don't, you know, I'm fortunate enough not to appear physically hurt. I mean, it looks like I'm maybe just sitting in a chair. So I think that helps a lot. They don't physically see me as somebody that's really disabled, to be honest. Now, when they see me motoring around the chair, you know, obviously that's, uh, that kind of gives that away. But, um, you know, I think once people talk to me, I have gone out, obviously, in uh, situations with uh, friends and things like that to wear an assistant, to where somebody might feel a little uncomfortable, like in a cash register, and they'll look at that person and say, um, now, what kind of shoes does he want? You know, or something like that, thinking I can't respond. So I quickly interject and respond, and after that, it's pretty much down to normal. And we were discussing before, you had a very, very successful career, and at one point you realized it wasn't satisfying you and um, well, you, you want, you wanted more to life. Yeah. I got a little bored with money management, especially, uh, I mean, I enjoy it. I still do it today. I mean, I still have some clients today I work with. I just don't do it on a full-time basis every day. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found is that, you know, I had more of an interest ever since I was like 20, even before the accident. Of, um, you know, I started out as a child and kind of interested in magic and things like that. And, you know, Houdini and some of the, you know, the great magicians of the day, you know, Copperfield, obviously. Um, and it kind of went from that to where, you know, I saw somebody on TV when I was at Merrill Lynch at 25, hypnotized three people on stage. And they all had remarkably different lives and the lives they were leading. So I found that fascinating and um, fascinated by the how they could describe various hamlets in China, for instance even though they had never been there. And another person had never been to New York described life as a flapper back in the 20s, uh, you know, living in New York City and describing streets and buildings. And so I just knew there was more than that. Now, growing up in, uh, you know, the Midwest in a, you know, in a uh, church environment, 
uh, you know, the minister or uh, never mentioning in church about reincarnation. So I always thought, you know, especially after the accident, you know, like, why me? Why am I the one in the wheelchair? Mm -hmm. um, you know, is this it? You know, I'm like, I spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair and that's all I'm going to know. And that's the only life I have. So I started doing more of a journey on discovering about life after death, about reincarnation. And then we learned that, uh, you know, back in 533 AD under the uh, Council of Nicaea, that Emperor Justinian had reincarnation taken out of the Bible. Uh, we got about 165 church elders and, uh, you know, under threat of taking their land away, their title, maybe throwing them in jail. So there's a lot of incentive to go along with the emperor at the time. So I think that, that sort of changed the course of uh, understanding of reality, you know, for the next 1,570 odd years. And that's kind of where we are today. And, and you're particularly fascinated with reincarnation and the afterlife. And I know you specialize in, in hypnotism as well and look at reincarnation. What happens, what happens when, we, when we leave our physical body? Well, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the stories are the same in some degree. I, you know, once we take them into a deep hypnotic trance, take them up to the moments of death um, and ask them, do you see yourself coming out of your body? Describe the scene now. And, um, you know, a lot of times they'll describe how they can stand outside their body. Uh, they might still have kind of their human shape, but they're a little more translucent. Uh, they're not as solid. Uh, and they'll describe what happens. They'll describe that, you know, I laid there. I'm, you know, this is one particular story. It's in the, my next book coming out about a woman in India who got burned in a fire. It was back in the 1870s or something and uh, came out of her body and kept going back in and out of her body for like over seven days until she died because the pain was too great to stay in it. And she would describe mm -hmm. how her son, father, her husband, you know, took care of her. And then she described her funeral. It, it varies. A lot of like to, especially younger souls, I find, and I know Dr. Michael Newton found this as well, that, you know, they like to go to the funeral, see who shows up. So, you know, since there's no such thing as time on the other side, a lot of, a lot of spirits might stay for a while. The more involved ones will just go right back. They want to get back to work and get back down here again and uh, finish up their incarnations. So it varies that a lot of them can see their body. They see them, their, their body laying there. They don't really feel an attachment to it anymore. But the most fascinating thing is when they go from there and you ask them that big question, where do you go next? Mm. You know, where do you go after you're, you know, seeing your body dead and you're going to, you know, being buried, et cetera. And then they describe, uh, you know, how somebody can, comes and gets, and often it's, uh, if it's a married couple and the spouse preceded the uh, person I'm regressing, you know, they'll come, a grandmother will come. Uh, normally it's somebody they know, somebody they recognize to make them feel comfortable to make that. And then once they go to the other side, or, you know, usually at the gate, their spirit guides might meet them. Um, and then they'll go in front of a council and then I'll go over that life and how they did on the lessons that they chose before they incarnated. It's also described as a life review. So there's not, not such thing as a judgment. Correct. Yeah, what you find, and I talked about it in my book, The Immortal Soul, what they're more, they're like more like benevolent mentors. They're more like somebody that's been with you. And what I find interesting is finding out about their counsels. Um, one person I uh, regressed uh, tells me about the counsel. There's three purple souls. There's an angel. 
And then the next next life, we're still going forward with the, with the uh, regression. And the next life that they passed away, you know, we'll have two members that were on that original council, but we have a new one. So depending on the lessons they take, can determine who's going to be on that council. But often what I find is that they're always going to be probably at least one or two that have been with you since the beginning. It's just a, such an interesting and fascinating subject. So also I hear you saying that we we lead a certain amount of lives and then eventually we no longer need to return into our physical body. Yes, that's true. And I, I believe that. And I think what we find is that what we find is that Dr. Michael Newton pioneered this. I didn't come up with this, but it's interesting when I say, what do you see when I'm on the other side? And I'll see, I see a lot of colors. And I'll go, really? To describe the colors, I'll go, are those souls? And yes. So there'll be green souls, yellow souls, blue souls, purple souls. And purple is the highest evolution is what you're going to find. A lot of times purple souls, don't even, they don't even have to incarnate. Once you usually reach about the blue level, you're about done. And um, purple is where you don't have to incarnate. There are purple souls incarnating now. There are some here already. And they're here for, uh, you know, helping to teach and, uh, you know, trying to help waken, waken humanity. It's so funny you say that. And I just got goosebumps because I didn't know that. But someone did a reading for me a while ago and said, you, you have a purple aura, a purple soul. And I thought nothing of it. But it's just interesting that you mentioned that. Not that I'm saying I'm, you know, great, but um, very, very. Well, no, I think it's interesting. There, yeah, like I said, there are purple souls here now. Um, I'm a purple soul as well. I found out, you know, from other people. And, you know, it takes a while to uh, find out these things. But what you find is that there are here now. There's more to be born. There's uh, one, one person in my book, uh, The Immortal Soul, talked about the, you know, the age of Aquarius, which is what we're in now. And mm -hmm. I did not leader and say hey what do you know about this no she just came out and said we are in the age of aquarius you know sort of like what edgar casey would do in a deep trance and you know talked about it talked about how they'll be more psychic they'll be more aware they'll be able to cross the barrier and that barrier when i asked her i said you know just i kind of thought i knew what she was going to say but she said that which separates us from god so those born under the aquarian sign in this particular time out of all the 12 signs um are going to be more psychically aware and and more of them will be born. I mean, over the next 40 years, she said there will be continue to be born. And this is tapping into the divine side. This is going to the super conscious state to where they are just tapping totally in the other, the other side of what's going on right now, the divine side. And uh, discuss how they're going to be like anchors or beacons. And it's like a web, you know, sort of around the earth. And how this is going to continue to take place. And it'll be in all nations and uh, those kind of things. So it's your belief that our end goal is to reunite with God or source. You can call it whatever you want. That's our ultimate goal. Yeah, I think what I've learned is we, we do a lot of meditation. And I think what's interesting is this injury, and I kind of wondered about it, you know, was, was sort of meant to kind of get me back on track is what I understand, you know, to slow me down a little bit. I was, you Well, know, it certainly did that. <laughs> Well, it does. And you have a lot of time to be reflective. You have a lot of time to think about things, whereas before you might have, uh, not there's anything wrong with it, but you know, I might have spent two hours in the gym that day as opposed to, uh, you know, meditating later on or reading a book by Edgar Casey or something. So, you know, it gives you a lot of time to kind of think, why me? What's mm -hmm. my purpose here? So when you go down a path like that, I find that, uh, you know, with meditation, 
hypnosis, you know, you can unlock a lot of those answers a little more by yourself. And you're extremely curious. Um, you ask yourselves a lot of questions that you don't know the answer to, which is incredibly wonderful. That would, uh, then I just thought of the question, are the big life events that happen in our humanness pre-planned? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the way, way you look at it, it's kind of like what Shakespeare thought about, like life's a play. And what you find is that you're going to come down there with an impromptu script. It's going to say, I'm, you know, I could be a female. I could be getting married. I'll have two children. I, you know, I'll have interest in this. I might want to go into nursing or something. And then what happens during that lifespan is you're going to have various events happen in that life. Okay. That's your basic script. And these events could be something traumatic. It could be a car accident, like I was in. It could be a disease. It could be a cancer. It could be losing a loved one, losing a child, losing a parent. And these are the lessons and experience that we signed up for to, uh, you know, kind of go through that probability. It's almost like a labyrinth. And if, um, you know, we were kind of standing on top of the labyrinth, maybe looking down and seeing the various choices you can make to get to the end result. But it kind of, you know, kind of, if you just kind of follow your life along and look at what Buddha's talked about, and he said that, you know, what, what somebody does is their karma and how you respond is yours. So I think if we look at some of these events, we're gonna have people in our lives that we've crossed paths with many, many, many times. And we'll feel that familiarity with someone. We'll feel that instant attraction, that love, uh, that com commod com you know, camaraderie. camaraderie. Uh, and we'll also find others that uh, were like, whoa, you know, I feel a little, I don't like this person. And I've seen it in people I've hypnotized. I've, uh, you know, hypnotized people that were going through a divorce or were divorced. And they would go back and recount a life back in 1800s to where, you know, they were married to that guy and he might have took her life in that, in that life. And, you know, just breaking that cycle of relationships, breaking that cycle of habits. And I think, I think we, we can identify these things in our life, beyond you know, phobias, fears, anxieties. Um, you know, we can we can uh, change ourselves for the better. Um, and I can give one, a couple examples real quick. Mm -hmm. One of the more interesting things I've done lately is something that even I think Dr. Brian Weiss was doing for a while. I know Dr. Newton got into it. And what it is basically is if you have undiagnosed pain, phobias, fears in this life, you know, whether it's a mental or physical pain. Well, a lot of times if they cannot help you, let's say it's physical. Let's say we've always had this, for example, I hypnotized a girl that was a 30 year old occupational therapist who had this constant nagging sciatic nerve pain in her left leg. Uh, doctors, MRIs, CAT scans, specialists, yoga, couldn't attribute to anything. She hadn't heard it in sports growing up or anything like this. So uh, we went to, we said, Dave, we go to the source of that and maybe figure it out. So going after about a couple of past lives we did, we went to that. And I uh, said, so let's go to the source of that sciatic nerve pain in your leg. So she went there. Next thing she's recounting alive as a, a revolutionary war soldier. So she's walking along with her mus you know, musket at about 21 years of age. And they got shot in the left hip with a 50 caliber muzzle ball. And just dropped her. You know, it was a 21-year-old male. Dropped yeah. her on the field. Bled out. And died right then and there traumatically. And that same pain lingered into this life. And uh, another example, I had a girl whose jaw, left, ligament in the left jaw, hurt all the time. Um, find out she was, um, you know, a, a slave back in 1820. They had a steel barn in his mouth. It was a male. Um, so they wouldn't starve to death. They had to force feed them because they 
you know, this person wanted to kill themselves for that life was too, that was not fun, as you can imagine. So, um, you know, you hypnotize them, you go to that source, and a lot of times it will lead back to another life you had. So I would say, I would encourage anyone that has pain in this life that doctors can't explain, or they have these dreams about, you know, being stabbed or shot or something, or they're scared or they have phobias, go back and unlock those. Because what you find is the more you unlock those memories, and that's what we did, you know, this, you don't need to carry those, that pain's gone, that life's over, it's just a life. What you find is like watching a scary movie. And one of the movies here in America, if you're over the age of 30, was called Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know if you've heard it or not. Yes, I have. Yeah, but it was where Freddy Krueger's dragging his poor high school girl down the hall and you're just sitting there shocked. And, um, you know, the more times they, they relive that scene, at the same time, uh, you know, releasing that trauma. It's like watching the movie. I mean, it's like watching a scary movie. You already know what's going to happen. You know the ending. And what you find is that pain will leave. That pain will go away. It's interesting you talk about bleeding into other lives. So almost on a cellular level, we we keep past lives or future lives within our yeah. DNA, within our body. Exactly. And I believe that. And I think what I found also, I think we all look at our own individual lives. And I had questions like, why am I collecting African masks? Why do I like pyramids? Why do I like crystals? There's a lot of things that most, you know, guys in suburbia grow up in athletics aren't collecting for that. Yes. Way. Well, most money um, managers don't start to, wondering yeah, about <laughs> near death experiences or afterlife either. So <laughs> they don't have a lot of pyramids in our house and that kind of stuff. Not most of them. <laughs> So and most don't I collect thought, crystals either. Exactly. So what <laughs> I thought was these led to past lives. And, uh, you know, that's when I started uh, exploring a little deeper myself. And that would be, you know, kind of hunting down what I would consider the top five most gifted psychic oracle types in this country or overseas. And I would ask them, you know, general questions and uh, see where they went. And, uh, then I'd compare answers and, you know, find out I've had lives in Egypt. And I think most of us have. Uh, being a 5,000 year history, I found, uh, you know, most psychics feel most people probably have one or two or three lives in Egypt, such a long time period. Um, you know, lives dealing with crystals, lives dealing as a Zulu warrior in Africa. Um, so you really, I think so I encourage people to kind of look at what they like to do, what they like to collect, what their hobbies are. They're a good singer when nobody else in the family has can sing a note. What they're passionate about. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, they'll find that they're, they're, you know, they either train from something on the other side, uh, especially doing probably the work you're doing. You know, you thought about it. How am I going to, you know, be able to help people? So you actually will find that some of the life, you know, it's not like we're all going to take horrible, tough lives. You know, there'll be balance. You know, I'll be in a wheelchair in this life. Probably won't be back again uh, here, but who knows? Um, and we'll all, you know, we'll have different lives. We'll balance out kind of what we're trying to work toward. And you know, from what I've learned from the top psychics, you know, you're looking at about 64 different archetypes. Uh, you know, you play the doctor, you play the slave, you play the inventor, you play the warrior, uh, the female, the male. You will interchange these lives to kind of get all the lessons uh, covered uh, and join God, what we know is creative consciousness. And if we don't know these lives and we don't know the experiences firsthand, in other words, if you look at souls on average, what I've learned uh you know, only about, probably about a third of souls even take human form. Mm -hmm. So people coming down to earth, even, you know, today, uh, you know, to be applauded. Not every soul takes a human, you know, a human life. A lot of take mental realms and these kind of things, spirit realms. 
Um, this is a complex question. Are we living all our lives consecutively? You know, I've heard that. And I've heard that, uh, you know, from others because, you know, there's no such thing as time and things mm -hmm. like that. We're, you know, peace of the soul, peace of collective consciousness. What I kind of, kind of see it as is if we took a deck of cards, okay, and let's say they were all pictures and, you know, even though we just had one line, but let's say we put a thousand lines on in a deck of cards. And as you thumb through them, how the, you know, how the pictures move sometimes if you have those yeah. kind of cards. So I think the lives, yes, can be stacked together, but it's all one whole, but it'll be played out. It'll feel chronological because the way we understand time. And we've had time here. I mean, let's be realistic. I mean, if you had a life in Egypt, you know, that was 5,000 years ago, unless it's just some huge simulation that we're all in, you know, to make it appear that, you know, it was uh, the same time as now. So, you know, I think that varies. I think what I've learned is there's what they call time. There's what they call non-time or no time. Mm -hmm. So there's different realms all through, uh, you know, uh, the creations, um, you know, that have time involved or they don't have time or they have some variance of time or, you know, where, where events are like markers. And I found that with ghosts, uh, the people that I advertise that, you know, decide to hang out on earth for three years, didn't know how to get back. They had no belief structure. They drive, you know, as a young alcoholic at like 17, uh, orphan on the streets of Boston in 1905, really interesting story. And how they didn't, you know, believe in anything. I mean, I find that a lot of battlefields, you know, a lot of the like Gettysburg, which is uh, close about two hours from me, you know, where they lost 53,000 soldiers in three days. You know, it's just full of ghosts. And a lot of them are, you know, probably young, 17, 18, 19. And since they don't feel that sense of time, what can pass is 150 to 60 years to them could be days. Okay, so that's where they get confused. And, you know, unless somebody helps them to cross over, you know, they figure it out later from somebody else. But you see a lot of that type of energy loops, almost like the movie Ghosts, where people don't even know they're really dead yet. Really, in, really interesting. So you've obviously been to Gettysburg a few times. Right. And yeah, what, like, do, what do you ahead. feel when you're there? Well, you know, I'm not going to just turn around and tell you I feel uh, the chills and, the, you know, the spirits rushing by me and things like that. So some people can't feel those type of things. Uh, Auschwitz, another sad example yes. where a lot of people can feel that, that pain and that despair and uh, depression. Um, but uh, Gettysburg, you know, I've met several people who have actually seen, you know, go, uh, you know, walking platoons of ghosts, you know, coming mm -hmm. out at dusk and just walking together. And, and that's pretty common. So it seems kind of uh, wild, but, you know, even a horse, one uh, lady I, you know, had three other couples with them and they were all uh, daytime, they were visiting with their kids and they thought it was a reenactment about 300 yards away on the edge of the woods. And they're going, wow, look at that. There's an old, that's pretty late reenactment today. You know, they see the soldiers walking by, there's a black stallion. And that stallion broke through. They thought it was a real horse because it was that solid looking. So it's saddlebags from 1860 are bouncing on its sides and it ran right by them. They can feel the whoosh of energy from that ghost horse. So, you know, it even carries into the animal kingdom too. Interesting, it's like they're stuck between worlds almost. Yeah, they are. And, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, they know how to get back fast. You know, they're evolved enough to bang know how to get home. Uh, if, they're, if they're young, uh, you know, maybe not awake, cosmic amnesia, you know, 18, 19, no belief structure, maybe they're atheists. Sometimes they'll sit in this whirlwind of like darkness for a while. 
and suicide, same things. A lot of times, uh, you know, suicides won't cross over right away. They're, you know, upset at what they did. It's like being in the middle of a dark hurricane. That's mm. how I'll describe. Obviously, I'm assuming it's dependent on each person, but is there a, a number of lives that we need to live or to incarnate to eventually return to God or uh, not return into our physical body? Well, that's a good question. Um, a lot of times, uh, like I said, only one third of souls from what I've understood through Newton and other uh, people I follow, I've only taken human experiences. What I would say is that it's not based on so much the number of lives you take, it's based on how many lessons and different archetypes you've passed. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's determined. Some uh, people, for example, could take five, 10,000 years, three or four lives to pass the lesson patience. That's a really tough lesson. A lot of people don't want that lesson. Um, you know, it could be ego. It could be a cycle of being in the, with the same relationship, the same partner four or five times where it never works out. And you have to break that cycle. So souls are kind of an interesting bunch. I mean, uh, you know, they will take uh, different lives. Some will take harder lives. You know, not saying myself personally, but, you know, people in wheelchairs, people that are taking that hard life, they, you know, they up, up at the other side. It's like, you know, maybe you have a sister and parents that are really nice, like I do, for example. And I'll say, okay, I'll take that role. You know, I'll be your parents. We all choose our parents, all of us. Um, you know, this person will pay my sister. We've been in other lives together. You know, thank goodness. They'll be helpful. So I see that kind of pattern. So I've met a lot of people that I know from other lives. And, um, you know, across our paths at different times. Some will cross 10, 20 years, 30 years later, you know, from our birth or whatever. And um, they're there maybe for a short time, maybe to help you do accomplish certain things. I've had different uh, assistants come into my life that, you know, were very opportune when they came in. You know, one was a very good writer and chief editor at the University of Pittsburgh. And, you know, she could help me with some of the editing and things like that. Others are good at uh, doing videos and such. And, you know, they came in right at that right time. So I think if we ask for it, I think if we are in the service of others, then a lot of things will come our way. And, you know, we often heard about the law of attraction and, you know, yes. we've seen a lot of prosperity preachers talk about it. But I, and I never really was sure, you know, it does, does that really work? I kind of wish myself to be a millionaire and all of a sudden I'll hit the lottery next week or something. But what I found is, though, actually, it's what you do. I think if you help others, you know, doing them through your shows, for example, writing books, whatever, um, you know, helping somebody else that's disabled. You now, what you find is a lot of things will come back. And it is amazing uh, how that law works. I know it's going off topic here. No, but- it's, it's funny because it was actually one of the questions that my, my mind was thinking of to ask you talking about, do we create our reality? So you're, <laughs> you're reading my mind. But it, well, it, it, I, I 100% agree being in service to others, but it's almost like a cycle. When you help others, you become happier. You're more positive. So it, I also think it's your thoughts as well, your your feelings of gratitude and love that. Uh, that, that what I learned was it was interesting. You know, we've done a lot of meditation. I mean, when you're in a wheelchair and you know you're waiting for somebody to come in, it could be snowing outside. And, you know, you got three or four hours or showing up. So what else are you gonna do? You might as well meditate or do something, right? So uh, especially if you're laying down. Gosh, you have an incredible attitude. I love it. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, what else are you going to do, really? So, you know, that's when we took advantage of some pretty long-term uh, meditative, like, journeys and astral projection and things like that. 
But um, what I found was that life, and boy, I understand it's like a pyramid in a sense. And and this is kind of, uh, this might sound a little out there, but we, you know, we had met with Buddha and some others on the other side. And it kind of described it as like a pyramid to me. And we worked on that. And what you find is if you look at God, you know, almost like on the dollar bill, where it's the very top, where the seen eye, mm-hmm. you know, that's where the most concentrated energy is, is at the very peak. And what you find is if you look at a pyramid as being empty with four sides, you know, love fills the middle. Okay. That's like the gas. And as you go higher and higher up, that love gets more unconditional more compressed it gets. But on the sides of that pyramid are the things we're all striving toward. You know, one of them is truth. You know, we need, to, you know, the reality of our lives, our existence, our souls. The other is wisdom, because we have to grow in knowledge to be able to advance, reach God. The other is service, you know, in service to others and, you know, helping others, you know, build that pyramid brick by brick. And the other would be like compassion and love. You know, how, how are we sharing that? And what you find is every life you take, you're going to be adding bricks to these various sides of your pyramid that you're building to get back higher and higher back up to source. And I was kind of sharing the truth, wisdom, compassion, and service. And love is the kind of that gas that fills the inside of that. And as you go higher up, uh, you build it closer and closer. And, uh, you know, of course, the love gets more condensed. Thank you. That was such a beautiful way to share and explain it and very, very clear. Um, re- really, really great. It d- I just want to backtrack you. We t- you talked about uh, encountering other souls that we uh, and family that we see and meet lifetime after lifetime that teach us lessons. What, what's your thoughts on soul family? No doubt. No doubt. There are soul groups or soul families. I've had you know, different gifted people tell me that, you know, there might be 500 in this family, there might be 50, but no, what you're going to find, and a lot of times I find pairs don't always come from the same soul group, okay? They're usually like, yeah, they're like usually in a group that's, then they can, though. I'm not saying they don't, but uh, they're also, because you would think, okay, it's my parents, they must be my same soul group. Because you, know, you assume souls are attracted to each other. We talk about soulmates that, are, that have this incredible attraction. Exactly. Assume a romantic relationship. Yeah. And I find a lot of times parents actually come from maybe an out another soul group. They come from mm-hmm. an outside group. You might've done some things with them in the past. You might've been their parent in another life. Um, you know, I find that, um, you know, we carefully choose our parents. We choose our lot. We choose our bodies too. We choose how much energy we're going to bring down. And a lot of people don't understand that. It's not that, you know, we bring it all down at once. If you're a more evolved soul, you're going to bring less energy down. You're going to leave more on the other side. So a more evolved soul, a bluish, purple, whatever, might bring down 30% or 25% of their energy because they don't need as much. They've already had a 1,000 or 2,000 lives. You know, life on earth might not be as hard for them as it is others. They don't get bogged down in uh, too much stuff. The detail. uh, yeah, you know, and they you know, try to keep it arm's length. And, you know, you can see people out there that are green or purple, you know. The green I found was interesting were a lot of healers, more, uh, you know, may, maybe in occupational therapy fields, nursing fields that are into Reiki. And the more, the blues were more into, you know, knowledge at this point. They're, you know, they meditate regularly. They're into Reiki, they're into shamanism, they're into crystals. And that's where you kind of find in a blue soul. They're, they're in positions of power a lot of times. They're natural leaders. And uh, that's what I've noticed. And then, you know, then the purples are, you know, coming back down just to help out. You know, don't have to incarnate. 
Okay. Yes, I'm just thinking about all the. I'm just thinking about people that I know and the colors that you're referring to. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty. I think you could find people. What I find is with greens, are they're evolved because white's the lowest, or the youngest. And what I understand is on Earth now we have probably about seventy percent of souls on Earth now are white souls. Really? They're younger souls, okay? Um, but they came down here. I, I mean, you know, to be applauded or taking tough lives, but they're trying to accelerate their soul growth. You know, because there's been a lot of people talking about how we're going to reach the, reach the point of singularity to where, you know, this this situation, uh, you know, is going to have an ending someday. And, I, you know, it's not that they're going to destroy Earth school. I mean, it's a nice planet. They're not going to, you know, blow that up. And my understanding is we don't see any other nuclear weapons being set off either. But at the same time, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there other realms, uh, what are the higher realms? I guess we can talk about angels, ascended masters, things like that. Or they're on parallel planes of us, and maybe they're over in the Pleiades or in Orion or Arcturus. And I've hypnotized a lot of people that have off-planet lives. And what you find if a soul's really, really, really old, then they're an alien because uh, the Earth was about four and a half billion years old. Mm -hmm. So if their soul's older than four and a half billion years, there wasn't even here then. So they're probably from like Pallades or Orion or somewhere like that. Some of the people I've hypnotized and described amazing lives. And I'd say, look, we're on Earth now. If you had to look at a star map, what degree would that be? How many light years away? And it's, uh, you know, it's fascinating. It's incredible, times. isn't it? Yeah. So we don't always have to just come down to Earth. I mean, we could, uh, there's mental realms. There's realms that are a lot easier than Earth. There's considered a pretty hard school because of the diversity, because of... You know, suffering. because yeah, the suffering, the you know, the challenges we face. And you you talk about suffering, and obviously, we, you know, especially you've experienced suffering, and you talked about the white souls. But suffering, even though no one wants it, it does really accelerate our soul's growth. If if we can overcome the suffering, exactly. I think that helps a lot. If you can pass that lesson, yeah. If not, you know, you're gonna come back and do it again. You're going to take something else. I had one uh, girl in particular, it's an interesting story in my book, Immortal Soul, who sadly committed, took her life in her last life. She was uh, about 15 years old, was being abused by a stepbrother uh, back in uh, the 30s, 40s, and uh, slit her wrist, sadly, and um, hung out at her house. And, uh, you know, her mother turned to alcohol. The stepfather was gone because she, you know, and her mother didn't really believe her, you know, or didn't accept it, found out it was real and, you know, just sad in her life. Um, but, and you find that it does, you, you impact others' uh, karma, their path, you know, by doing things unexpectedly, like, mm -hmm. like killing herself. So that's sort of a no-no and you will come back. What she found, she came back again in this life and described how, you know, told me about how, you know, she was in another situation where she was abused. But this time, you know, she passed it. She's a stronger person. Great job. And, uh, you know, got through it. But a lot of times you'll see them repeat hard lies. And the thing is, they come down if they don't, you know, if they don't get hit or not born awake, you know, it will be as traumatic as it was the first time they didn't pass that test. And with cosmic amnesia, um, you know, it's easy to kind of understand about other things. I mean, they're just caught up in that tragic uh, moment. And, um, you know, I've, I've encountered situations like that that had to come back and repeat similar lives. I had a girl, uh, not a girl, a lady, about 65, I guess, up in Massachusetts about a month ago who was very active. I mean, you could just, she was like, 
I mean, she had MS at this point. And I would help her with some pain and things like that. But, you know, we did some past lives. That's what she would want to do also. So, you know, she's recounting his lives where she fell off her horse in 1860 and, you know, broke her hip. She's riding it at like 90 years of age. I mean, this lady was a, a firecracker, to say the least. And, uh, but was not passing patience and a couple other lessons. So then she confided toward the end of it and said, yeah, I, you know, I went to divine self. She said, I took this life of MS to help slow me down so I could pass patience. Incredible. And what comfort that must have brought her because one of the questions people may ask is, well, why do I need to learn about these lives? But you've already explained how it can help you move on. No one wants, I call it reading the same novel over and over again. No one wants to do that. <laughs> it's time to get a new book. Yeah, and I think, I think it's fine because we have a lot of leeway when we make choices. Now, we might be encouraged by our spirit guides to come down, you know, take a harder life. I've had uh, people in my Book of Moral Soul who, you know, the, the you know, she passed all her lessons, but when she was back in front of her counsel, I go, yeah, you did great. And, you know, we, we, we see leadership qualities in you. That's why they explain it to her. But, you know, you're going to have to take a little harder lives to be able to get up to that green level you want and things like that. I mean, it's... It was kind of, kind of encouraged. I mean, you sit up there and goof off, but, uh, you know, eventually they're going to, you know, they're very, very intelligent, very involved. And yes. they're going to say, hey, you know, we got to, we want to see you get you going here. So, uh, yeah, you'll see them all of a sudden say, well, they get shot down here on earth and, uh, you know, with cosmic amnesia. And, you know, that's why I think it's important to work you're doing, you know, near that experience uh my, my sharing about reincarnation, why we're here and taking these lessons, you know, we'll give people pause, hopefully, and they'll say, you know what, I see these three challenges in my life now, I'm dealing with a, you know, an alcoholic mother or father or my brother's a drug, you know, whatever it is. And see, you know, see how that, how you fit in that, that script, that story, and, um, you know, how you might help benefit them, you know, with guided, measured words and help. And, uh, I think that's that's one of the lessons they take. A lot of times people take lessons to, you know, like I said, feel the pain of a loss of a loved one. You know, that's a tougher yeah. lesson for you, especially a young child or something. And those are tough lessons. And, you know, people go, why, you know, why would I do that? Why would I take that life? Yes, and, why uh, would I suffer? I get so many questions and I'm sure you do as well. Why would we come back to suffer? Oh, well, exactly. And it's, it's, it's funny though, because it's not that God is punishing us. He's not up there saying, my God, I'm going <laughs> to... You know, beat these beat these souls down over here. No, it's not like that. What it is, we take those lives. We want to experience what it is like to be disabled. We want to experience what it's like to be, you know, a, a rich senator on some court. So you want to play a life's roles. There's different roles you're playing in your place of life. And I think if uh, people can kind of say, hey, you know, I can I can see that possibility, you know, and realize that they took reincarnation out of the Bible. I mean, if we were uh, Hindu, Buddhist, Kabbalah, Sufi, whatever, we'd already believe in reincarnation. It wouldn't be any fact. It's like, oh, yeah, we took a tough life this time. We'd already know that. So that's where the awakening of America is, uh, in the Western world is, uh, and in Europe as well, you know, is hopefully going to be strengthened as we go forward and more people get out there uh, doing past lives, doing, discussing their death experience like you do. And, you know, let people realize that, you know, this life, might be rough, but it's not the only one you've had. And there's and a more to Let's see what we can learn from it. 
Let's see what we can learn from it. Let's see what we can show others by our example. And there's, I was, I'm amazed. I mean, I've been on YouTube enough and seen other people with disabilities and wow, what great attitudes most of them all have. I mean, they're out there sharing some videos about their new wheelchair or about, you know, the therapy and all this. And I've been, you know, it's encouraging. I mean, there's a lot of people not sitting around depressed uh, with a bad injury that is, you know, kind of, you know, you all heard the cliche that you only, you only get what you're going to handle. And I'm pretty amazed at how many people are handling tough things. On the other side, uh, conversely and sadly, is there's been a lot of people taking their lives down, you know, in the military, for example. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with some of the medications that they get on. They're not discovering the benefits of meditation, the benefits of the gnosis. They're not understanding why me, because they don't understand that they led other lives before. So a lot of them are sadly uh, hurting themselves. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, opiates today. You know, that's, uh, that's a bad thing. And uh, I think if uh, some people turn away from destructive practices, set a goal, you know, doesn't matter if it's just for that day, that week, that month, that year, and work toward that. You know, and I think if people realize, you know, you're afraid of a wheelchair, you're paralyzed, or you're, you got a disease that's eating you up, they're not expecting a lot out of you anyway. They want you just to try to survive and be as happy as you can. They're not expecting you to do something pretty cool. You are such so an I, inspiration. Well, that's what separates, and that's what you want to do. Like, strive for something and say, whoa, gosh, that's so cool. And, he, you know, he's able to do that. I see that on the internet with the people that are suffering with disabilities and such. You are such an inspiration and such a motivation, not only for me, but for so many others. I just want to just briefly touch on, we talked about the white souls and some people haven't woken up. They take they get so self-absorbed in the reality that they're experiencing. Do you think some people don't have the capacity in this life to wake up? Yeah, a lot of people will wake up this life. And uh, not they don't have the capacity, but the cosmic blocks are pretty strong. Okay. Like what I understood was, you know, and you know, the people, different people wake up. Uh, but a lot of times what I learned was that I'd actually signed that in my contract before I came down. You know, that I would wake up and be aware of, you know, a greater picture of reality and things like that. And that was just part of the understanding I had when I came down. Um, I think others can find that away. It took me years. I mean, the Dalai Lama woke up at the age of four and knew who he was before they made him the Dalai Lama now. I mean, it's a really yeah. amazing story. But, um, and others have awake. A lot of psychics are awake. A lot of people with gifts are awake. And I've met uh, quite a few. Um, but what I would say is that if one tries to meditate, if one goes inside and just tries to quiet their mind, and I find the best time to do that is not during the day. We all have pretty crazy lives, especially people working full time with COVID and everything else. But do it right before you get up in the morning. You know, instead of setting that snooze alarm for 10 minutes, lay there, relax, visualize your body as like a battery, recharging and bringing golden light down you know, through your crown chakra, feeling yourself becoming, you know, energized. And at the same time at night, if we go to bed, a lot of people you know, have insomnia, they can't sleep, they can't quiet their mind. What you find is that theta state, which is that state you're in right when you, right when you wake up and right before you go to sleep at night is that perfect trance state. What I tell clients to do is I say, you know what, you got a mother that's you know, has cancer, you know, it's worrying you, eating you up, you know, the bills are mounting up. But we don't need to worry about that tonight. 
there's nothing we can do right this moment. So I have them visualize these things, put them behind a golden door, like a vault, shut that door and lock it and lay there by yourself and contemplate your life, contemplate yourself. And, you know, it's easier to form goals too. What they found at uh, just a simple Harvard study, they did uh, what they call mindfulness uh, for a bunch of participants. It was over eight weeks and it was like 20 minutes a day for two months, eight weeks. Uh, what they found was after doing the MRI prior to these sessions and what they, the MRI difference of their brain growth as far as gray matter, glial cells, cross currents between the left and right hemisphere, forming new neuronal connect, you know, neural connections. Uh, what they found is uh, it's just amazing what meditation can do. And I encourage everybody to at least give that a try. You know, Buddha said, you know, it's not, you know, they asked him, they, you know, this is kind of what they say is, that, you know, what did you gain from meditation? And he goes, it's not what I've gained, it's what I've lost. I've lost stress, I lost anxiety, I lost fear, I lost depression. I lost all those things. So if we lose those things, if we take stress out of our life, we take anxiety, fear, depression, knowing we're immortal souls, it's been pretty much talked about since Plato. We know through quantum theory that, you know, the soul is energy. You can't destroy energy. It just comes back in a different form. I mean, if we just accept science, let alone what the religious texts have told us for thousands of years, uh, we come up with a greater understanding that we're just kind of, you know, this floating soul and this energy. It is web of energy. And um, that's when we can really do some fun things if uh, we start to picture ourselves like that. Yes, agree. Totally. And meditation for me is such a fundamental part of my life. And it was interesting how you said what you lose, because I probably hadn't thought about it in that way, not what I'm gaining, but not what I lose. But it's a, I love it how you flipped it. That was wonderful. You are such an inspiration. David Rippey, all your details will be in the show notes, but is there anything else you'd like to talk to the Passion Harvest audience about? Well, I think the thing is, if you're facing challenges, if you're facing uh, traumatic events, if you're facing life-changing circumstances, I think the best thing to do is find meditation, find yourself, see if that, you know, if your situation was something that maybe you thought about before you incarnated. And I think the biggest thing of all is set some goals. You know, set some goals for yourself and move you from where you are, where you feel stuck. And uh, try to just inch forward. You know, I mean, Confucius even said, it doesn't matter how slow you go, just don't stop. And I think if we have some faith in ourselves, we have believe in ourselves, and we want to take it as a challenge, a test. What I started doing early on is I would just turn around and say, wow, that stinks. Uh, my wheelchair is broken. How am I going to get to Merrill Lynch today? But you look at it as like a test. It's like you hold it away from you. Do not absorb it. Don't absorb the negative energy. Hold it out like it's, uh, you know, some Rubik's Cube you're trying to solve at that issue and uh, figure out the best way to get around it. I think if we look at our challenges as tests, it'll be a hell of a lot easier than if we absorb them. I'd also say, uh, you know, beyond setting goals, um, you know, share what you find out, share what you learn, share with somebody else about vitamins, uh, supplements you know, knowledge and, uh, you know, you'll see your life change too, through, uh, you know, through the universal laws and the law of attraction. David Rippies, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. I'm honored, I'm inspired and I'm extremely motivated. <laughs> You're incredible. Well, you are too nice and uh, appreciate all the time and kind words. Thank you so much.
That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.